Anyway, back to Mick. Okay. In the beginning, when we first worked with him overseas and 66, yeah. I used to watch him standing in the wings, and I didn't know why. You know, his wife, why he was looking. And then I started watching him. He was just doing the tambourine thing at first, you know, just beating on the floor with the tambourine. Tear up one, he'd get another one, another one. And so when he came to the States and worked with him, here he was all over the stage. And I said, aha, now I know what he was doing. So then after that, He'd come to the dressing room and I'd say, oh, the popcorn is out, Mick, can you do it? You know, and his coordination, I mean, his, his rhythm was really off, you know. So he'd try to do it, he'd bounce around. He said, well, I can't do that one. I just want to do it my, my own way, you know. But uh, So you noticed yeah. the influence there. Though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That was Tina Turner recounting how she taught Mick Jagger how to dance. A fascinating thing about pop music history is that it is littered with all kinds of stories of this wild magnitude. Stories that seem to emanate from a rock and roll compendium of ancient myth and legend. This episode is in part about how we reconcile legend with reality while we navigate the delicate world between the two. Sarah Bernhardt once said, Legend remains victorious in spite of history. In the world of rock and roll, this is usually the case. My name is Micah McKee. I'm a songwriter. And this is American 100. Broadcasting from the musical center of the universe into the vast stretches of the universe, this is American 100. Welcome to American 100, the show where we explore the random and not-so-random beauty of music. This is my robot companion, Rando. Hello! And at the end of every episode, Rando randomly selects a year and two spots from the Billboard Year End Hot 100 chart for us to discuss for the next episode. And last episode, Rando selected the year 1990 and the numbers 18 and 56, which correlate with Black Velvet by Alana Miles and I Wish It Would Rain Down by Phil Collins. So without further ado, let's take a trip back to the year 1990. The great heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, once said this. Elvis was my close personal friend. He came to my Deer Lake training camp about two years before he died. He told us he didn't want nobody to bother us. He wanted peace and quiet. I gave him a cabin in my camp and nobody even knew it. When the cameras started watching me train, he was up on the hill, sleeping in the cabin. Elvis had a robe made for me. I don't admire nobody, but Elvis Presley was the sweetest, most humble, and nicest man you'd want to know. Stories like this one fascinate me because for all of his legendary aura, it is enlightening to know that Elvis was a regular human being. Of course, it's difficult to imagine this being true, because Elvis Presley is the most mythic American figure the 20th century ever gave us. 
Elvis's favorite music was gospel. He was obsessed by stories of larger-than-life kings and prophets, the miracles of Jesus, tales that are woven into our mythology. That he would become a myth himself then is perhaps no accident. The status of mythic royalty that was bestowed upon Elvis was always central to his existential tug of war. When folks called him the king, he'd snap back and say, Jesus Christ is the king, I'm just an entertainer. Yet Elvis Presley was not just an entertainer, and he knew it. He built for himself and his family their own Xanadu, a golden palace, the second most visited home in America, a place called Graceland. There was always a part of Elvis that wanted to be something else, something beyond. He inspired others to reach for the same unknown heights. Songwriters were not only compelled to write songs because of him, they wrote songs inspired by him. And the legend of Elvis became a wellspring for original music. To all the people underground Listening to the sound of the living people walking up and down. This is a track from one of my favorite songwriters, M. Ward, off of his ode to classic American pop music, Transistor Radio. Listen to the dark, cavernous vocal, the spooky, phantasmic quality juxtaposed against a major key melody. Now listen to this early Memphis Elvis tune, Tomorrow Night. remarkable thing here isn't that Elvis's music is influential. Everyone knows that. It's that Elvis's spirit, his nuances, his essence, are so central to all rock and roll music after him in some way. This was his great enduring magic trick. That morning when I walked into the dining room, 
I spoke. I said, good morning. He said, good morning. I said, what are we going to have for breakfast this morning? He said, fried peanut butter and banana sandwich. And I looked at him. I said, what? He said, fried peanut butter and banana sandwich. I said, I never heard of it. His father was sitting there. And he said, Mary, I'm going with you and help you. And let's see, maybe both of us can get it right. I said, okay. And uh, he said, let's toast the bread first. So we toast the bread and then spread the peanut butter on and sliced the bananas and put on it. And uh, put them into the skillet and kept turning them with the spatula. And turn them till they got heated all the way through. Then I take them and cut them, put them on the platter and take them back to me. And he said, that's what I want, that's right. And then smile. Elvis as an idea, a concept, is a strange and tenuous labyrinth. It's everything that is right or wrong about America. Songwriters love writing about Elvis. It's not often you get to tell stories about a mythical folk hero who actually existed. Moreover, how often is it that folk heroes trigger so many varying emotions in a person? The thought of Elvis makes some folks angry, happy, hopeful, ashamed, patriotic, heartbroken, and romantic. This is my friend Alexandra Scott's song, Elvis. It's one of the very first compositions I ever remember hearing by her, and it instantly moved me and resonated with me. At the time, I'm not sure that I was really all that much of an Elvis fan, but this song made me want to become one. Being an Elvis appreciator seemed like a unique and special privilege. I'd be part of an anointed flock, a society of explorers. Even more than loving Elvis, I wanted to understand him, if that was at all possible. Saturday night or Sunday night and Monday night, he didn't eat anything. I said, you're not going to eat anything for me before I go. He said, "Mm mm-mm, I ain't hungry. I just want to rest. And I said, well, okay then. Night-night, and I'll see y'all tomorrow. He called me May We. He said, well, okay, May We, I'll see you tomorrow. And that's the last time I seen him alive. That was five minutes to two in the morning. Why do we dream about Elvis? Why do we impersonate him? Why do we curl our upper lips and make jokes about him busting out of a velvet suit spangled with rhinestones? Is it because we are so fascinated by his duality of godlike stature and inescapable mortality? Mm 
a demigod, come crashing down on a 50-foot Hawaiian wave. Maybe it's this, or maybe it's something else. In 1990, Alana Miles released the song Black Velvet. It's one of many, many songs about Elvis, but the only one to hit the Billboard year-end Hot 100 chart, coming in at number 18. Black Velvet is a tribute to Elvis, written by two Canadians, Christopher Ward and David Tyson. It sets the tone with a minor key blues rhythm and begins to paint a hazy, dreamlike picture of the boy from Tupelo. The composition's tone isn't elegiac or really all that laudatory. Rather, it's a meditation on the space occupied by Elvis, dark and triumphant. I think one of the most captivating things about the song Black Velvet is its insistence on sounding nothing like an Elvis song. In this way, we get to perceive him like never before from a fresh perspective. The words Black Velvet rhyme with That's Elvis, a clever trick from two award-winning songwriters driven home by a blistering chorus. About that chorus, it completely diverges from the blues musicality of the verse, and that's intentional. One of Elvis's biggest critiques is that he couldn't seem to get off of the track that his life had laid before him, personally or professionally. Black Velvet undoes this, in a way. By shifting the melody so drastically post-verse, it opens up new possibilities and alternate universes, finally giving Elvis the freedom to change that he so compulsively and stubbornly resisted. As engaging as a portrait as Black Velvet is, we ultimately leave the song not having learned all that much about the man himself. 
And really, what could be more fitting? Because maybe why we dream about Elvis is that even though he is the most storied rock star in history, the dark clouds and the haze of myth obscure him. Maybe he's just like America, wild, broken, and unknowable. His moods a lot of times affect my moods. If I did, we were both in the pits of hell at that time, I'm, I'm, literally. And so therefore, when I thought he was down, I was going to try to be up. And when he was up, I was automatically up. I mean, I was that in tune to him. But it was difficult. It was hard, you know. And you want to just say, God, man, you know, come on. It's not too late, you know. Get a grip in your life, you know, and, and get away from the drugs, you know. Don't, don't use them. You don't have to. And take a little time off. Nothing's that impressing. You don't owe anybody anything. If you get rid of me tomorrow, and I told him that, I, and I meant it from the bottom of my heart. If you get rid of all these guys, they will understand. And if they don't, they were not your friends to start with. But take some time off. And he'd just look at me and say, I can't. I owe too much to too many people. Coming up, an artist always willing to go above and beyond. You're listening to American 100. Hey, y'all. Micah McKee here. Writing and producing the podcast American 100 for Cicada Radio has been one of the great pleasures of my recent life. Sharing my love for and insight into popular music and the people that create it is an enlightening and gratifying experience. After being on the air for over a year, we've gained thousands of listeners every week, which I am immensely grateful for, especially since we started this thing on a wing and a prayer. In order to keep putting out quality content for my listeners, though, I am humbly asking you for your patronage. Literally $3 a month will go a long way and will help me keep this lovely little show going. At the $10 level, there is an extra treat. I'll cover and professionally record my interpretation of any song that we talk about on the show. Any song at all, per your request. Visit patreon.com slash American 100 to show your love. That's patreon.com slash American 100. With your help, we can keep the record spinning. Thanks, y'all. Well, it's hard to believe that it doesn't matter. I mean, I was without a lot of money for a long time, and you just do it because you do it. That I just love what I do. Uh, but what drives me is just trying to do it better. Yeah. Trying to write a better song, trying to sing it better. There's an astute observation circulating around the internet these days. 
It's that when asked to write the soundtrack for a pretty straightforward Disney tale, the story of Tarzan, Phil Collins took it upon himself to go above and beyond the call of duty and compose this. I see myself as people see me. Oh, I just know there's something bigger out there. I want to know, can you show? Phil Collins' songs for the 1999 Disney film Tarzan go all out. They are bizarrely existential, hyper-intense, and for a 1990s Disney film, pretty thought-provoking. But this kind of ambition is just par for the course for Phil Collins. He prides himself on how extra he can be. For his landmark 1985 album No Jacket Required, Phil Collins experimented heavily with drum machines recorded take after take of improvisational sequencing and ended up producing a masterpiece that challenges the listener sonically while somehow remaining grounded as a polished pop album. One critique of Phil Collins is that he takes himself way too seriously. This can certainly be the case. Collins tends to hover in spaces that are drenched in melodrama and pathos. Think of the plaintive One More Night. But by the same token, Collins has a pretty good sense of humor, and he often goes the extra mile into the land of the absurd, as demonstrated on the timeless banger, Susudio. No matter what jacket he's wearing, Phil Collins puts so much love and attention into its embroidery. In 1989, he released the album But Seriously, and as the title suggests, Collins used this record to tackle huge, sweeping topics. Socioeconomic disparity, racism, death, and the struggle of the unhoused in Another Day in Paradise. She calls out to the man on the street The record, but seriously, was a far more organic approach than his previous work. Collins ditched a lot of the electronic drums that had catapulted his solo work into pop success and got back behind the live drum kit. And on that same album, Phil Collins would produce one of his most grandiose rock compositions, which surprisingly landed at number 56 on the Billboard Year End Hot 100 chart of 1990. For this tune, I wish it would rain down, 
Phil Collins really could not help himself. It's nearly six minutes long, and Collins insisted that Eric Clapton shred cheese all over the top of it. Buckle up, y'all. We're going on a ride, and Phil Collins is in the driver's seat. Right at the top, Phil Collins hits you with his signature noise gate on the snare drum as almost a wink and a nod. Eric Clapton might be the guest here, but Collins wants to make sure you know who's in charge. It's the drummer. And as wonderful a drummer Phil Collins tends to be, this isn't one of his most ornate performances. And that's all right, because the goal of this song is to simply be huge. chords, aggressively major key. Phil Collins walks the dangerous line between bombast and overkill, but even when his productions are over the top, they still have so much character. Eric Clapton almost ruins the song with his brand of ridiculous blues rock wankery, but Phil Collins' production puts Clapton right where he needs to be, an accessory to another one of Phil Collins' layered and stacked compositions. Phil has the audacity to slip a gospel choir into this song, and I have to say, I'm here for it. He's already featured one of the most infamous guitar offenders in rock history at the top of this song, so Phil Collins figures in for a penny, in for a pound. Again, so much character in his vocal performance. You would be inclined to call this tune overblown if you weren't absolutely certain that Phil Collins means every single word. And this is what he's so good at. Reaching higher and higher past the limits of reason, and repeatedly anointing himself as one of pop music's great overachievers. Coming up, a tribute to one of rock music's understated giants and one of my favorite drummers of all time. You're listening to American 100. Can you tell me your name? Uh, 
and what it is that you do for your work? Uh, my name is Brad Spiegel, and I'm a resilience planner for the Louisiana Watershed Initiative. On the first episode of River Runs Backwards, we covered the concept of watersheds with our expert, Bradley Spiegel. He took us on a tour of his neighborhood where the city is implementing a project using the concept of something called green infrastructure to mitigate flooding. I'd love to show you. Right, let's go. <laughs> However, we were not able to take a deep dive into the material that day. But luckily for y'all, we recorded the whole thing. Cool. It is cool. <laughs> now, we offer Brad's entire interview as a little bit of land yap for our Patreon subscribers. That this house is much higher than what we're standing on in the street. Uh-oh. Gunshot or firework? Firework. Firework. Yeah, yeah firework. <laughs> the good and the bad. Just go to patreon.com slash radio. Even as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. Plus, you'll get swag. And don't forget to subscribe to River Runs Backwards wherever you get your podcasts. And so Charlie Watts has left the earthly plane. Watts had the best touch of any rock drummer of the classic era. It's near impossible to imagine the Rolling Stones with anyone but Charlie Watts behind the kit. He is simply that integral to their sound. Here are a few of my favorite Charlie Watts moments. Let It Loose is my favorite track from the Stones' landmark double album, Exile on Main Street. Part of what I love about it is exactly what I love about Charlie Watts himself. It's not flashy. It has the feel of a theatrical ballad and could easily get carried away, but it rests in a realm of comfort, a subtle technique from a quietly brilliant human being. With a beat this direct and earnest, you can do wonders with a song. You can sink a song deeply into the valleys and lift it out just as easily. Most rock drummers are locked in with the bass, but Charlie Watts is locked in with Keith Richards. 
Charlie's drums answer Keith's guitar like a rescue boat responding to an SOS, braving the rushing waves to lead us to some form of salvation. Mick Jagger might have been regarded as a deific figure, but on this track, Charlie Watts is the savior. You can't talk about the Rolling Stones' sense of rhythm without talking about Can't You Hear Me Knocking. It's probably the Rolling Stones' best recording. Legend has it, it was recorded in one take. Yeah, you got statues! Charlie's interplay with Mick Taylor and Keith Richards gives you the feeling that he's jerking and weaving his way through a narcotic groove. Another clever trick from a very clever man. And in addition to Charlie Watts, the personnel on Can't You Hear Me Knocking is staggering. There's the strange genius percussionist from Ghana, Rocky Dijon. Rocky had an incredible life. We're going to talk more about him on the next episode. But there are more titans on this recording, like Bobby Keys on the saxophone and the fifth Beatle, the black Beatle, Billy Preston on the organ. These beautiful minds make this sound so easy. And that's because, to them, in that moment, it probably was. For all the observations of the Rolling Stones being derivative, Can't You Hear Me Knocking flips the script and gives us something totally original and soulful. What's that time again? Time to randomly select the year and the two songs that we are going to talk about on the next episode of American 100. Commencing randomization. The year 1968 and the numbers 54 and 21. Which correlate with Take Time to Nowhere by Percy Sledge and The Horse by Cliff Nobles. American 100 is produced by me, Micah McKee, along with Asher Griffith, and is presented by Cicada Radio. A very special thanks to Alexandra Scott and Seth Cockfield. And lately times have been a little tough for a lot of people. So I'd like to leave you today with a selection that gives me some perspective. This is David Newman and Ray Charles doing an instrumental version of Hard Times. From all of us at American 100, thanks so much for listening, and always keep a song in your heart.
This is Cicada Radio. Sing, love, die.